Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. It's really great to see you all here today. Um, before we get started, uh, as always, we have some quick housekeeping to go over. We have added a ton of events in March and April, um, so please take an event newsletter up at the front of the store and stay tuned to our social media pages uh, as new events are being added each and every week. Uh, there's a lot going on, and we'd love to see you back there. Um, next Saturday, actually, we have a BBC broadcaster, Adam Lukasiewicz, who's uh, coming to talk about evolutionary history, which should be a pretty interesting topic. Again, that's next Saturday, and we hope to see you there. So now on to today's event. We're very pleased to welcome two Pennsylvania natives, the Harris St. Vincent and Tim Cunningham Grant. Uh, they've both written uh, beautiful new novels that have just come out, um, and it takes place in Pennsylvania. So there's this Ways to Hide in Winter and Kings of Fallen Mountain. Um, this event kind of came together pretty fortuitously. Uh, Jamie and Tara actually reached out to me. I think it was within a week or two of each other, and they pitched this book that both set in Pennsylvania with Pennsylvania uh, natives, and it uh, just made sense to, to do a dual, dual event. And then um, I actually reached out to Pete uh, over at Messiah College, and Pete actually ended up being uh, Jamie's advisor at Messiah College. So again, these fortuitous circumstances that came together, and uh, this is the event, the event. Um, so a little bit more about our authors uh, who we have on stage here. Sarah St. Vincent grew up in rural Pennsylvania and attended Swarthmore College, Harvard University, and the University of Michigan Law School. As a human rights attorney, she has advocated for survivors of domestic violence and currently researches national security and surveillance through Human Rights Watch. She currently lives in New York City. Jimmy Cunningham Grant is the author of the memoir, Silver Like Dust. She is a two-time winner of a Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Memorial Prize in Poetry, as well as a Ruth Lilly Poetry Fellowship Honor. She's also a recipient of a Pennsylvania Council of the Arts Fellowship and Creative Nonfiction. Her essays and poems have appeared in Rattle, Poet Lore, Tar River Poetry, among many others. She studied English at Bucknell University, Messiah College, and Oxford University. Joining them on stage, uh, as we mentioned, will be Pete Powers, who is the Dean of the School of Humanities at Messiah College. So special thanks to Pete for joining us today. Um, now, let me tell you, literary fiction is tough. It's tough to sell to publishers. It is tough to sell to an audience. It's tough to sell to customers. It's just really tough. Um, but both these novels have received uh, pretty wide acclaim. So it's very exciting. Um, book page calls Sarah St. Vincent's debut novel eye-opening. Um, and that it makes it clear that you can hide for a season, but spring thaw will catch up to you eventually. It's a great blurb. Um, and she got two star reviews from Kirkus, uh, Kirkus Reviews and Publishers Weekly, which again is pretty rare. Um, Shelf Awareness writes that Cunningham's Fallen Mountains is ingeniously plotted to the end, and uh, Kimmy is included on a book riot list of, what was it, the future of English nonfiction. Um, so uh, without further ado, please join me in giving a warm Harrisburg welcome to Sarah St. Vincent, Jimmy Grant, and Pete Powers. I'm always adjusting the sound, so I'm not very tall. Are we good? Everybody can hear me? Thank you for having us, and thank you for coming out today. Um, I am going to read from the very first uh, chapter of my book, it takes place in two timelines. And um, the first chapter is actually after the disappearance of the person who we're looking for in this novel. And it's told from the perspective of Red, who is the sheriff of the small town. After. 
The summer's heat arrived in fallen mountains like a winged thing, swift and startling. The pansies drooped, the lettuce bolted, the trees shook off their buds. As Red walked back to the police station from the diner, crabapple blossoms, pink and white and wet, dropped from the trees that lined Main Street and stuck to his shoes. He fiddled with the locked door and stepped inside, wiping his feet on the mat, dabbing sweat from his neck with his handkerchief. The letter announcing Red's retirement lay tucked in the top right drawer of his desk, sealed in an envelope he'd planned on submitting to his secretary, Lee, at the end of the day on Wednesday. Today was Tuesday, and Lee worked just two days a week. The truth was, there wasn't a whole lot for a secretary to do at the police department of Fallen Mountains, Pennsylvania, which wasn't a department, really, just Red and Lee, and the fact that the borough kept on approving the position at all was a small miracle. In the past year, the most egregious offense the two of them had handled had been when a bunch of kids broke into the high school at night and let a troop of farm animals run loose through the halls. Chickens, two pigs, one Nubian goat, mud on the walls, droppings scattered through classrooms. Red had seen to it that the culprits were put to work with the janitor one Saturday, scrubbing and mopping until the place glinted and sang with a piney clean scent. He ended up feeling a little guilty about the punishment, though. Those kids stuck inside working on a beautiful spring weekend, and he'd taken them some fried chicken from Wheeler's Diner for lunch. There were, of course, minor transgressions that occurred in Fallen Mountains, small troubles that Red, over the years, had come to expect. The bomb gardeners were always getting into it at their double-wide way out on 28, tearing into each other and carrying on until one of the neighbors would call Red to complain. Mrs. Baumgardner was six feet tall and had a good feet 50 pounds on her husband, so he was typically the one who got the worst of it. And there were the usual indelicacies, phone calls in the middle of the night, people overdoing it at the bar, folks trespassing and shooting deer out of season. Much of the time, Red also served as a game warden of sorts, he was the one people called when there was an animal mangled in the middle of the road, or a snake under their porch, or a skunk prowling around their garden. Red was proud, though, that Fallen Mountains was a place largely isolated from the greater sins of the world, a fact he was reminded of every night, watching the evening news from his living room recliner. But Red was turning 60 in the fall, and he could no longer deny the fact that this was a younger man's line of work hauling drunks to the station late at night, dragging deer off the road, squeezing under porches with a headlamp strapped to his forehead and praying he wouldn't come face to face with anything venomous. These were things he'd once done without difficulty, things he'd actually embraced with a manly vigor, but not anymore. He was tired. He was ready for a change of pace. As he geared up for his retirement, Red looked back on his time as sheriff with a sense of satisfaction. Well, mostly. 22 years of service and only one indiscretion, one real regret, a mishandling of sorts, and so long ago. In the grand scheme, it wasn't a legacy to be ashamed of. Red knew that. But recently, with Transom Schultz back in Fallen Mountains, with that unimaginable mess he'd fashioned out at the Hardy Farm, Red found himself thinking quite a bit about that mistake. But even more, 
about what he let Transom get away with all those years ago, and even more about the boy he played dearly for Red Silence. Possum, he was called then, and was still called, even though he was a grown man now. As Red sat at his old metal desk, staring out the window into the steaming June afternoon, the cars sleepy and slow as they drifted past the station, he thought of his father. The man had spent his whole life working in a steel mill back in Pittsburgh. He'd quit school in the 11th grade and been miserable for as long as Red had known him. But at night, for a tiny sliver of each day, his father would come alive, reading Faulkner aloud to Red and his brother. Sanctuary, as I lay dying, the sound and the fury. His father's favorite quote, the one he'd recited countless times to Red and his brother, was a famous one from Requiem for a Nun. The past is never dead. It isn't even past. In an attempt to remind his sons that every action had a consequence, Red's father had their mother write it in her nice calligraphy and frame it. And that terrible truth had plagued Red and his brother all through adolescence. Every street race through McKee's Rock, every skipped class, every rock thrown into, into the glass of old factory buildings, every girl he ever touched, Red thought of Faulkner. Red pictured it now, that yellowed paper, his mother's fancy lettering, because he could feel it, the past sweeping into the present like a giant ship. That one slip up from 17 years earlier, it was back to shine its ugly face at him yet again. He was sure of it. so much for coming out. Um, I'm especially appreciative that my family is here. This book was a seven-year journey, and nobody gets to do that without a lot of support. So I'm also grateful to those of you who turned up who are not related to me. Um, I think it's really exciting to be able to speak to a central Pennsylvania crowd. Um, this book was kind of my love letter to home uh, when I was traveling very far away from it for a number of years. Uh, it started in Michigan when I was in law school and then came with me through a number of jobs. Uh, in yeah, many states and, and just such a, a long journey with it. Um, and so to have it, to be able to share it with you now is really quite a special thing. I, so just to fill you in a bit on the plot, because I'm not going to start at the beginning of the book, I, it's a bit of a, a story that moves both backward and forward. It's the narrative of a young woman named Kathleen who is uh, unfortunately um, disabled and in a very vulnerable place and increasingly opioid addicted, but very smart and, and funny and stands up for herself, very confident. And she's putting her life back together after a terrible car accident that killed her husband um, and left her in this disabling opioid-addicted state. And she's working in a small, isolated, non-cop general store in central Pennsylvania in a state park that is real. Um, and she's, so she's created this kind of zone of safety for herself where she can recover from the accident and kind of put together you know, who she is and figure out how to move forward. And then one day a mysterious stranger walks in. A mysterious stranger turns out to be uh, essentially an undocumented immigrant from Uzbekistan, the former USSR, who has some secrets of his own. And so the story is about both their past, what happened in Kathleen's marriage that helped to bring her to this point, um, and what this, this other character, Danya, has done that has caused him to basically be fleeing from the authorities. And then moving forward, what do you do when someone who you've met 
you've come to really care about and maybe even love when you realize that they've done something really horrific in the past. Uh, and so I'm going to start with, I'm going to read two passages. Um, and this first one is a scene where we've, we've met our second character, Donnie, who's kind of come in, and he's very sort of blustery and, and a little bit, you know, comes across as somewhat unconfident, but still charming and charismatic in his way. And so they're kind of breaking the ice together. And then he mentions her limp um, that she has, which he doesn't realize is, is from this accident. And so this has kind of rattled her, and she drives away from work, uh, and so that's where this scene will start. There were two lakes in the park, Laurel and Fuller, both of which stood where the quarries had once been. When I was a child, bits of blue and green slag from the old iron smelter had still washed up on the sand that had been trucked in. My brother and I would walk along the shore and collect them, along with pebbles and snail shells and shining fragments of charcoal. Laurel was the shallower of the two and was always crowded in summer. Small children with their mothers, Boy Scouts, softball teams, fishermen. Laurel had pavilions and grills, fire pits. When I got married, we'd had the reception there, outdoors, under the sun, surrounded by hordes of happy, frolicking strangers. Fuller was something different, smaller, deeper, darker, encircled by pines. Fuller was where, when I was 16, I would lie on the sand late at night, long after the park had closed, and look up at the stars in their endless, stoic expanse where I brought friends, the ones who could stand the silence. Sometimes coyotes would bay, or a small nocturnal animal would crash through the brush, but otherwise nothing stirred. By day, it was just as still. Few people swam at Fuller. It was too isolated, too chilly, too overwhelming in its indifference, its unchanging beauty. Grabbing my book, I tramped through the woods to Fuller, drawing my coat around me and following the slight downward slope until I could see a clearing through the trees. A few more steps, and there it was, the great pale expanse of the lake, ice streaked with snow that glittered under the empty sky. A ring of pines surrounded the void like sentries, stretching back over the mountain, dark and imposing, keeping watch. A pair of picnic tables stood near the shore, and I walked over to them. With a gloved hand, I brushed the snow off one of the benches and sat, opening the novel I was carrying. The pines stretched overhead, seeming to bend and converge at their tips. The wind stirred the pages, tugging them from my fingers. I put the book aside restlessly and rose, stepping closer to the lake that seemed to draw me toward it, its very blankness beckoning to me. How thick was the ice? I'd never seen anyone skating here, but that didn't necessarily mean anything. Most people, aside from the hunters, wouldn't care to risk the steep curves the road made as it wound its way up the side of the mountain, not in December. Edging up to the shoreline, I touched the ice with a foot, and something tightened in my chest. It didn't matter what people thought they saw when they looked at me. I didn't limp. I let out a breath. The cold air was sharp in my lungs, making me feel even more alert than usual to every movement around me, every sound. Tentatively, I slid my foot all the way onto the ice, then took a step. The surface was firm beneath me, seeming to push back against my heels. The breeze reached through my clothes, and I shivered, feeling something inside me twist, like hard, dead vines being wrung tight. I didn't limp. I didn't. I took a second step, elbows pressed against my sides. There was a low sound as the snow yielded under me, crushed, in, crushed into footprints. Otherwise, the world remained devoid of noise. I looked out over the gray plain that stretched around me. Our wedding, mine and Amos's, had been held in a chapel on this mountain, St. Eleanor Regina, a falling down clapboard place in a clearing, one with a handful of windows to let in the sunlight, a priest who came through once every couple of weeks. It was what I had wanted. I scuffed a foot against the surface. The twisting feeling grew tighter, as if something within me would rub together too hard and spark. I stood still. 
Then suddenly I was marching forward, half running, feet pounding against the ice. My breath came quickly as I lifted my boots, one after the other, traces of snow scattering behind me. The hot, clenched feeling burned inside me, pressing against my heart and making me stumble. I banged my knee against the surface, hard, and gasped, but pushed on. Slipping and scrambling, I went out 50 feet from shore, then 100, then 200, farther and farther. Before I knew it, I had reached the center of the lake. I came to a stop, panting. The ice stretched out around me, wide and smooth, 100 yards or more to each point of the shore. The cold had brought tears to my eyes, and I, and I wiped them roughly with the back of my hand, legs trembling, pretending not to feel my hip burning and my shoulder throbbing where the pins had been put in. Steam rose through from my mouth as I breathed. When I shifted my foot, the ice creaked, sending a jolt through my nerves. I moved quickly to what felt like a thicker patch and crossed my arms over my chest, listening to the rush of my breath. The space before me was deserted, as quiet and stark as the surface of the moon. Tipping my head back, I gazed up at the sky and the dark, ragged points of the treetops. Sweat coated my temples in the back of my neck, and I could feel my pulse thudding. Feeling both sick and exhilarated, I let myself drop onto a thin layer of snow, sitting back and letting it soak through my jeans. I would never know why I did these things, not really. Most of the time, for the past four years, I had felt as though I were enveloped in a haze of fear, a low sense of terror that hummed and crackled in the background, making me flinch when I lit the gas stove, when I drove in the rain, when I mounted the ladder to fix the gutter. And yet, every so often, I flung myself into danger as if it were the only thing I wanted, as if I could only be alive in moments as swift and violent as the one that had frightened me the most. Um, so the novel uh, is about... It's about domestic violence. That word is never used, not until the end. Um, and it's about the non-physical forms of domestic violence that I think are a lot less talked about and certainly less portrayed in TV and film. Um, that was what I really wanted to capture with it, was the nature of emotional and psychological abuse, financial abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, all these things that many survivors will tell you are often harder to overcome than the physical abuse, but that can be so very devastating. And so the novel is really a, a narrative about that and then overcoming that. Um, and so, let me see, I will just read a brief passage. Uh, it's a passage, it's an exchange between, in the past, between the main character and her husband, and he is pressuring her to leave college. I knew what was coming, I must have, even though I pretended I didn't. Still, when it happened, I was unprepared. I need a wife who's here with me, he said one day, sitting on the edge of the bed, his face turned toward the window. A plume of cigarette smoke uncurled above him, and there was sorrow in his posture. I can't help it, I just do. I looked at him, my backpack dangling heavily from one hand. My stomach dropped into my shoes. I need us, he said slowly. I need us to be a family. Leaning forward, he stubbed out his cigarette, studying the dead end of it before turning to look at me. His voice was gruff but vulnerable, determined but tinged with regret. I'm sorry I feel that way. I know how much you enjoy being down there. The expression in his eyes was withdrawn, as if he expected to be hurt, had prepared for it. If you really want to go on the way you've been going on, you might be better off without me. I'd never be better off without you, I said, then in a rush. And I don't enjoy it, not as much as I enjoy being with you, anyway. I'm not so sure about that. Resting his chin in his hand, he watched me as if expecting to read something in the way I looked back at him, the way I breathed, the way I stood. If I asked you to leave that place and come up here and be with me, would you? He said, finally. A moment passed, and he cleared his throat. If it was important to me? A long silence followed. There was an unfamiliar sensation in my chest, a kind of tightening, 
As I gazed down at my hands still gripping the backpack, I saw that the nails were white from pressure. But I knew there was only one right answer to the question. Of course, I said. Thanks so much, Kimi and Sarah, for your, for your reading, and thanks for everyone for being here. Um, I was kidding with Alex just ahead of time. I know you're all waiting for your uh, reservations at the Millworks, um, but we've got a great conversation to have here about uh, these writers and, and these works. And, and actually, I would like to just take a prefatory second to thank Alex and the Midtown for uh, the things they've been doing recently to kind of enhance the literary culture, the reading culture uh, of, of the city of Harrisburg, and that includes uh, the writers that we have here and, and, the, and the readings that they uh, did today. So um, I will say also by preface that I think this is the only time that Kimi will ever do a reading in which her claim to fame is that she used to be my advisee when she was an undergraduate. So uh, she can put that behind her now. Um, thank you both. Uh, we were talking a little bit uh, before we got started that uh, a lot of times when you think about Pennsylvania, uh, you think about writers out in Philadelphia, uh, and that kind of has a certain kind of characteristic, and then uh, writers in Western PA and Pittsburgh and, and kind of the uh, post-industrial landscape that can sometimes characterize writing in that area. And it, it, it's a question, you know, about what kind of landscape we are here in, uh, literary landscape we are here in central Pennsylvania. Uh, and so it, it's notable in both your books that you, you talk a lot about place, and place is very, very important, uh, both enabling, it seemed to me in some ways, but also maybe disabling to, to your characters in some respects. Uh, I, I'm wondering how you think about place, and maybe especially this place, you know, central Pennsylvania, uh, and both of you growing up here, uh, uh, both of you being connected to this place. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering what role place uh, has had for you in your uh, development as a writer and why it became so important in these particular first novels that you've produced. So Kimi, we'll start with you and then we can just go from there. Um, well, for me, I I think very a lot about place. Place is really important to me, um, especially outdoor spaces. Um, I feel most clear-headed and most alive when I'm outside, so um, that it made sense that I would write about that. Um, but when I first came up with the idea for this book, I, I remember where I was. And I, I had just had my first son, and we were walking, and there was a sign about, um, it, we were walking through like a farm field, and there was a sign that it was under, that there was a proposal under development to develop it. Um, and so that's initially where I started to think about this idea that what, you know, land is so important to people, and under which pressures might someone do something that they think they wouldn't do to protect land or something dear to them. So that's kind of where it started, but um, as, well, Sarah said, her book took many years to write, and mine did too. Mm -hmm. And so a couple years in, um, I had the opportunity to go um, to northern Pennsylvania, where my book ends up taking place, um, where my husband is a biologist, and he studies the effects of... Um, fracking on aquatic ecosystems. And so I took a trip and spent a day up there thinking and writing about it and saw 
you know, these pristine areas, specifically of the Allegheny National Forest, that have just been completely changed and overtaken by fracking. And so I knew immediately that I needed to change the setting of my book to um, to explore that impact on the, mm -hmm. the land. There we go. Uh, so at least one of the reviewers for this book has very kindly said that the, the setting is almost like a character in the book, and I really took that as a compliment. Um, it's set in a real place. Uh, it's set very much in uh, Pine Grove Furnace State Park, which is real, and which happens to have, and again, this is true, uh, the ruins of a World War II-era prisoner of war camp near it, um, where, where the Allies basically shipped German and Japanese officers to be held and interrogated, because that's how isolated this place was. It had been a civilian conservation corps camp um, and then a church camp and, and, you know, after that, but in between it was this POW camp. Um, and so the setting, the book is really tied to the setting because that winds up figuring into the narrative, this idea of imprisonment versus freedom and working your way toward freedom. And ultimately the main character, just like me, really loves the place, loves her home, is deeply tied to it, sees it as so profoundly beautiful. And yet part of her trajectory, I, I feel as though the, the two readings I did wound up being <laughs> a little bit dark, um, but the trajectory for her is going to be almost like in the springtime kind of breaking through the top of the soil and thinking what comes next for me? And am I going to be able to leave this place that I'm so deeply tied to where there have been generations of my family and where I'm, I'm almost afraid to leave. I've been taught that these should be the confines of my world. So the, the setting really, that it, this very specific central Pennsylvania setting helps to shape her, helps to shape the story. And then the question is, is that where she's gonna stay? Or is she going to have the, the courage perhaps to, to try venturing somewhere else and see if she can make it elsewhere? Yeah. Um, both of you pick up on things I was very interested in, of course, the fracking very being very important in your uh, novel, Kimi, and I didn't even know about the, the uh, interrogation camp uh, down in, down in that part of Pennsylvania, so very fascinating to just learn that about the past. Um, it, it struck me that you know your landscapes then also have a past, right? It's not like they just kind of exist there as natural uh, places. The main character, or one of your main characters, Chase, is kind of very obsessed with how the landscape has, has changed. Mm -hmm. a and a lot of your other characters, are very the whole book in some ways revolves around particular events in the past. Um, mm -hmm. And similarly, there's Characters have a past, a hidden past. All your characters in some ways have hidden types of things uh, in their past. Uh, I, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, about that motif in, in both of your works. It uh, works out in different ways, has have di different meanings and resonances. Um, but the past seems to almost overwhelm uh, characters in both your books in some respects. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, uh, you know, what do you think about the past yourself? Why did it become so important uh, in your own effort to tell, tell a fictional story? We'll, we'll start with Sarah and then we'll go back. Yeah, um, so my main character is someone who is very much at risk of being tied to and defined by her past forever. I think that when we've experienced something traumatic, it can, anger can be healthy. And I think as women, we often are discouraged from being angry, um, or at least being openly angry but it can be healthy to move through that stage. I think that the, the challenge that Kathleen faces is not getting stuck there, um, not getting stuck in, in anger and bitterness. Uh, and so, again, yeah, just, just as the land has this very complicated past that raises all sorts of moral questions, um, 
Kathleen needs to decide whether she's going to spend her life sitting and ruminating on the past, sitting and ruminating on kind of the deep questions, or just take the step to, to get up and go. And she has a, a grandmother in the book who's kind of, she was a fun character to write because she's sort of bitter and jaded and, and funny and doesn't care about anything anymore. Um, and so she was just delightful to write. But the grandmother is someone who has kind of gotten trapped in that past anger and, and that bitterness. And so again, it, the main character is going to look at her and think, is this who I want to be? Or am I going to take a risk of breaking free from what's familiar to me, even though that's so scary? Yeah. And Kimi, your book also had, of course, characters that were traumatized by the past or mm -hmm. trying to, to reconcile a, a trauma of the past. How did you decide to work that out and why did that become so important in, in your book, do you think? Um, I, I really wanted, I hope that the book is redemptive. I think, I think it is, um, ultimately. I wanted the characters, I, I think that like the characters in Sarah's book, they, they are consumed by it. And I think the past can consume us. Things that we've done that we regret and things that we wish uh, weren't part of ourselves. And so I wanted my characters to be working through that in different ways and um, either decide to come to terms and face the wrongs that they've done and accept them and apologize if, if necessary, or to keep on burying their past and hope that people wouldn't find out about it. Um, but I think we're always shaped by our past. And um, ultimately, I think uh, my characters, I want them to come to some sort of redemptive end in this book. Yeah. I'm going to spring a question on you that I didn't prepare you for. So <laughs> um, both of you chose different ways to kind of talk about the past, actually. Um, uh, Kimi, your book is structured between a before and after, right? And we mm -hmm. keep getting closer and closer, but we don't know yes. quite what the event was until, until very close to the end. A and you have flashbacks, and it even becomes a little bit uncertain for in some parts of the book who's what happened in the past. Um, I, I'm wondering how you chose or why you chose those ways to, to represent the past. Um, uh, it, it seems like you could have just had an event happen and then tell the sequences that happened. Um, uh, so there was certainly some artistic choice that went on to that on your parts to say, how am I gonna keep this mystery going somehow and then, then reveal it at the right time uh, to the degree that you do reveal it uh, in your work. So I, I don't know, Sarah, if you wanna try to sure. field that first. Um, for me, it happened organically. When when I started writing the book, I, I sat down in a cafe one day and had this vision of a young woman standing on at the edge of a lake in this kind of tattered gray coat. And it became the scene that I just read you, that where she's kind of standing at the edge of this frozen lake and then impulsively runs out um, because basically she's very frustrated with her life and grappling with a lot of things. But so I had this vision of the character and then thought, okay, well, why is she standing at the edge of the frozen lake? What has brought her there? I had the sense that she was injured. Well, how did she get injured? You know, what is her story? And so in writing the book, I, I, had, I, I outlined the plot as I went, but in some ways I was learning about her even as I wrote. And so as I drew out her past, I was sort of determining what it would be. And then with the other character who, we, who you didn't wind up meeting in the passages that I read, this character who's a, a basically a, someone who's been denied refugee status from Uzbekistan, who has a, a problematic past of his own, I just wanted to get them to get to know each other as people, the way that you would, so that you don't know everything about each other up front, so that he's learning about her, this person who may look very simple on the surface. She's flipping burgers in this tiny general store in the middle of nowhere. She's actually a deep thinker and very smart with a very kind of rich inner life, as they say, and he also is not as simple as he seems. And so I, for the reader, I wanted, I wanted the reader to get to know them just as they were getting to know each other. 
And Kimi, I found actually your structure very interesting and unique. I, I wonder how you struck on that way of trying to talk about this this major event in the past that seemed to be driving all your characters. Um, for me, structure was the hardest thing to nail for this novel. I wrote and rewrote, and I hit a point where um, uh, my I had an uh, interest from a literary agent, and she basically was like, revise it, here are my uh, suggestions, see what you come up with. But she didn't officially offer me representation. Um, so I went back, and I kept... Um, studying other writers who kind of write in this genre, so I would read other literary mysteries and sort of try to learn how they were structuring, because my, my um, degrees are not in fiction, so it, it was new ground for me. Um, so I, I was educating myself on how they, how they handle the structure, and so I, it took a lot of work, I mean, that I knew the characters and I knew the different things that I wanted to have happen, but there were threads that ended up coming together as I figured out the structure. Um, and in that revision, I ended up cutting 40,000 words, which is a lot of words. A lot of words. Um, and then rebuilding, and finally, and after I sent her that new one, she was like, okay, let's do this. And so she's my agent now, but um, that, I think it's just figuring out the structure, a way that people could, could follow, but piece together a mystery um, but still make it a literary mystery so that there were other themes that I wanted to explore. That was the hardest thing for me, the structure, yeah. figuring that out. Uh, Kimi, I'm going to continue kind of in a literary vein, actually in the part that you read right at the beginning, that you referenced uh, Faulkner, right? Uh, and, and Faulkner comes up at several points I in, your, in your book. Uh, and, and you even quoted the one, one, one section that, that about the past mm -hmm. uh, that, that we've already talked about just a little bit. Uh, Faulkner's uh, famous citation that the past uh, isn't dead, it isn't even past, and that becomes a very big part of what we do. I, I wonder, uh, and, and, and Sarah, your book had Dostoevsky and especially Crime and Punishment as a very big uh, thematic almost uh, element uh, of the book in, in some respect. I, I'm wondering if you can tell me, uh, you know, about that specifically within your books. I mean, why did it was very self-conscious that you were choosing Faulkner, very self-conscious. It seemed very obvious that you were choosing Dostoevsky. But why did you make those choices uh, for these specific books? And then maybe can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, were, were those writers particularly important to you in some way, or they just seemed to work for your book, uh, and, and so you chose to use them uh, in that fashion? Maybe I, since I started with Kimi and her references to Faulkner, we'll, we'll start with Kimi and come back to Sarah. Sure. Um, I don't remember if you're an American lit professor. You are. So <laughs> I'm sorry to admit that I, I didn't specifically head into this because I'm a huge reader or fan of Faulkner. Sorry to disappoint former advisor. <laughs> but um, I, but in when I was in graduate school, one of my professors loved this quote. He was a creative nonfiction professor, so he would always reference it. And he was getting us to write um, creative nonfiction, specifically memoir, and so um, just this idea that you're never really separated from the things that you, you have done or haven't done or you have seen or have read, um, that's always kind of shaping who you are now in this moment um, in good and bad ways. Um, and you can move on or not move on, but the past is always part of us. So that quote, um, when, I was when that theme of the past began to emerge in this novel, um, it made sense that I, that that quote came to me immediately because my 
professor in grad school was always quoting it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. It, I, I will say it's notable just because of those, those authors are so huge yeah. in the canon, right? <laughs> in, in a way that could almost be overwhelming, I would think, you know, for for a writer setting out as both of you were to write your first novel. Um, so, so what about you and Dostoevsky? Uh, yeah. So were you trying to imitate Dostoevsky or oh, no. reject Dostoevsky or, or how did he work into your I mean, your work? I could never begin to compare myself, of course, to someone who's such a, such a master. And I, I knew that was a risk, right? With if within the first five pages of your book, mm -hmm. you have a character's quote Dostoevsky, you gotta bring the goods, right? And so <laughs> since you know, many people have asked me about this, oh, why Dostoevsky? I'm like, oh, I have to sound smart now. <laughs> but so the, the reason is that I think, so as I realized later, this is actually not why it's in the book, but I want to flag this. Um, Dostoevsky is in his own way this wonderfully feminist author. If you read Crime and Punishment, it has such compassion and sensitivity to these female characters, especially female characters who others scorn. Uh, you know, the woman who has a husband who, who struggles with alcoholism, a uh, young woman who's a sex worker. It just, it, it really treats female characters as human in a way that's just wonderful. But the reason it's in here is that it gets you to root for the bad guy, fundamentally. Um, Raskolnikov, we see him at the beginning, this is not a spoiler, <laughs> he, he murders two people. Um, and it's never really clear exactly why he does it. But because he is the main character, and you see him struggling with poverty and just with so many things, and with some of his better impulses, that you wind up rooting for him and almost hoping he gets away. And my character from Uzbekistan is not a murderer, but has done something really, really terrible, um, arguably unforgivable. And yet my main character sees so much of what is good in him, such that when she learns what he's done, she really faces a struggle of, am I going to turn this person in? Um, or am I just going to accept them for who they are, even though they've done this terrible thing? And so that's why I wanted to plant that seed of someone who does something horrific and yet you wind up sympathizing with them. There's also something of a social class thread that runs through the book a bit. Um, when mm -hmm. Raskolnikov, in Crime and Punishment, he, he goes, he kills two people, one of them just because she happens to be there. But the one he's aiming for is a money lender, someone who is basically poor herself but exploiting others, kind of in a way that, say, an unethical pawnbroker might, you know, someone who's kind of taking what they can from very poor people. And Kathleen has a certain amount of growing class resentment um, not being filled with the fact that people look down on her because of who she is and where she is and what her background is. And again, I think that winds up being something that nudges for her toward freedom and thinking about who she really wants to be and what she really wants to do. Yeah. Of course, it's also the case uh, um, that these are very um, iconic images of violence against women, right, in, in Dostoevsky's work mm -hmm. uh, as well. And, and that's certainly a central part of your your book. It, it's not quite as central to yours, Kimi, but th that does emerge kind of residually with the uh, abuse of the secondary character's mother, um, mm -hmm. Possum's mother's abused by the by the stepfather and so forth. So mm -hmm. that's there. Um, and and violence against women uh, is very central to to your particular work. A and you mentioned earlier fracking, uh, of course, uh, Kimi. And we're living, of course, in political moments when uh, the Me Too movement uh, focuses on questions of violence against women um, and, and makes it very much a part of our contemporary discourse. Mm. Fracking, of course, has been, been very much a part of our discourse here uh, in, in the state of Pennsylvania, for mm -hmm. sure, and, and elsewhere as an important political environmental question. W when you hear that kind of stuff circulating, do you feel as fiction writers 
oh, I need my work to speak into that, or does it just kind of come in incidentally? Uh, how do you how do you see your work as a fiction writer? Do you think that you're supposed to uh, somehow do something in your fiction that that speaks to that kind of discourse that's going on in the political arena, um, or or is it just something different um, that that drives you? So I'd start with Sarah, and then we'll go to Jeannie. Yeah, I think in in my book, this is just this the story that I had to tell. This is the thing that was burning a hole in me, and it's not that I sought to. It's not that I was out to kind of educate people on my view of domestic violence or my view of some of the other things that come up in the book. And the fact that, for example, opioid ab abuse is in here is because it was, I mean, I had an accident where I broke my shoulder in two places and had a plate and pins put in, and this was back in 2011, and I had all kinds of opioid medications thrown at me because that's what was being done. And so it, it's actually that the same things that gave rise to the opioid crisis in some ways overprescription, arguably, and also gave rise to the experiences that I had. I was very fortunate not to get addicted, um, but I could easily see how that would have happened. Um, and there's a similar narrative of, about the war on terror and several characters in this book who have family members who have been in the military and kind of wrestling with the real struggles of, say, being a, a kind of de facto single parent when your husband has been stationed overseas for so long. Um, or grappling with things like having to read the news about Abu Ghraib. Uh, and that's not because I was trying to send a message, it's because it's real for all of us. It's not just something that's in the news, it's something that's actually very much part of our lives. And so that's actually how this yeah. wound up in here. Great. Um, and as I said, Kim, you said you have some of those elements, but, but fracking, of course, is very uh, large uh, violence against the, uh, against the environment, I guess we might, uh, we might also include there. Mm -hmm. Uh, similar question then to you, you know, did you, you, you seem to indicate earlier that you felt some need to address mm -hmm. um, that particular circumstance in your book so much so that you changed the, changed the setting and I guess yeah. that would change some other things that went on with the book mm -hmm. as well. So, uh, so how do you think about that issue as you, as you sit down to write uh, your own fiction? Well, I think like Sarah said, um, I don't typically sit down to write fiction because I want a message that I, that I want to portray. Um, they they come up because I I'm living here and they are the issues that that are on my radar. Um, but initially, I think as a fiction writer, I want to I have a character or a story or an image that strikes me and I want to explore that. Um, when you're writing literary fiction, you usually end up going down a couple different rabbit holes and um, but I never but I never wanted to. Um, persuade people per se. I didn't go out with the intention of sending a certain message, I guess, um, as I wrote. But when I did go up to the Allegheny National Forest and see that, I knew, I mean, I already, because my husband studies fracking, I knew that I would, um, that that was something that we should know about in, mm -hmm. um, in Pennsylvania and, and see. And so uh, it wasn't a huge stretch for me to go you know, an hour north of where I was initially picturing the the book to take place, but it made a lot more sense to include that, um, especially because fracking is such a divisive issue, and um, I do think that the landowners, a lot of the landowners, are really in a in a predicament. You know, it's not an easy choice for them, and. Um, but I wanted, even with that, to give some kind of hope. In an earlier draft, I didn't have a lot of hope with the ending. I had a char the characters leaving Pennsylvania. Um, in the final draft, I ended up, uh, they end up kind of um, 
hoping that that one day that land that has been destroyed could be beautiful again. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to maybe just pick up yeah, on please. a piece of that. One commonality between the books that I thought was so interesting was this destruction of the land and mm -hmm. people who are having to make difficult trade-offs and choices about yeah. economic benefits yeah. in what can be very disadvantaged areas versus preserving the place. And there are allusions to this in the book, but I, so I grew up in Newville, Pennsylvania, which um, right down 81, um, it's south of Carlisle. And over the years, I've watched warehouses be built on what used to be farmland. And mm -hmm. right now, if you get off the, the Newville exit off 81, there's a place that used to be a really lovely old farmhouse and kind of rolling hills and cows. And now that's all been bulldozed. And last time I saw it, it was kind of acres of, of mud. And I'm not condemning that choice, but um, it what I realized in, in writing the book and also the experience of going home over the years is that you can cling to your home, but ultimately home might kind of shift out from under you anyway. It's going mm -hmm. to change. Mm -hmm. And for the character too, and I'm actually just realizing this as I sit here, that the fact that there's a, she faces herself in kind of a state park that can't really change, right? Because it's preserved, it's a historic site. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's, it's a good thing for her that even if she chooses to leave, there's some piece of that that will always be there. But there's a particular pain and almost heartbreak I find that comes from watching your home really change and, and change in ways that you might just have a lot of regret about while also realizing it's, it's growing into something else. And it was always going to grow into something else, mm -hmm. yeah. even though that can be a little yeah. negative. Mm -hmm. Maybe one more question from here and then, uh, and then Alex can have some Q&A with the audience. So if you have questions, be thinking of them now and, and we'll take those uh, in just a second. Um, we've ta had a little bit of a theme of talking about, you know, your own experience of this area and how that's how that's uh, been part of what's gone into your work. Uh, you obviously both have lives apart from being writers, uh, and Kimi, of course, you have your ded lovely dedication to your family and and uh, your kids and your husband, uh, and and I know that that's a big part of your life apart from being a writer. Uh, and Sarah, you're a lawyer with Human Rights Watch, and uh, that that obviously has got to take a lot of your energy and imagination. Uh, I'm wondering how you think about what it means for you to be a writer in relationship to these other parts of yourself and, and other parts of your life. So a little bit of departure from from kind of focus on on the book itself. But um, you know, do you see writing as this kind of lovely escape from the other things that you do, even escape from family maybe, I don't know. Um, or is it just really <laughs> integrated? It's just all one thing and you, you find yourself really fed by the rest of your life and, and you're being an art artist uh, feeding those parts of your life as well. We can start with Sarah and we'll, we'll conclude with Kimi. I mean, I do, but I think many of us have that thing that we just have to do because it's just who we are and it's just, we can't stop ourselves. And for me, writing is that thing. Um, and yeah, so I, yeah, I, I have a full-time job. I, I research this US surveillance for Human Rights Watch. So making sure the government is respecting the constitution when it spies on people. Um, and of course, yeah, that is very much full-time job. It's a lot of travel. It's a lot of mental energy. Um, but there, I, I want to caveat this. Writing is a joy. Editing is hard, especially plot mm -hmm. structure and moving pieces around. And there's a point where it just feels like a math puzzle. Like, oh, if I move this scene here, then I have to do that. That's really hard and kind of tedious. But the writing is such a joy, especially, you know, I've come to learn that writing a book motivated by anger is really, <laughs> is really hard. It's a hard place to kind of strip yourself for a long time. And you need to have some characters for comic relief and you need to have some characters who you really enjoy writing. And one thing I've learned over the years in writing, working on now novels two and three, is to give yourself characters who you really enjoy. Don't just spend all the time on the heavy, the heavy questions. And for me, like to wake up in the morning and get half an hour of just writing a character I enjoy because they're so deliciously irresponsible or because they are um, 
you're such a, a well-meaning dope and like a stumble in the thing. You know, like you get to play somebody else. It's like acting. And I find that so much fun. Um, and so it is, it, it can be very tiring. That's part of why this took so long um, was having to have a full-time job in order to eat. Um, and then also having the, the kind of fiddliness in evenings and weekends. Um, but it's been so rewarding. It's been so rewarding. And it really can also just be quite an enjoyable thing to do in the moments. Um, I could not agree with you more when you said that the writing is fun and the editing is hard. That's exactly how I feel about it. The writing and creating is, is life-giving and fun and revising and figuring out where you messed up and what you need to change and the 40,000 words that you have to cut and let go in this page document. Um, you know, that is work. It feels like work. Um, but it's hard balancing everything. I think in some ways, um, they it, writing this book, I think, was a little bit of an escape. Um, I did it when my kids were really young. Um, they couldn't really talk yet. And I would get up in the morning and, and write. And um, But now I'm writing a book that's, well, I'm revising a book that's almost done, I think. Um, and the so many things that my son, who is the age of a character in the book, um, I, I steal things that he does. And so it's all, you know, so my life, also shapes that so it's an escape in some ways because I do appreciate that life-giving time just of quiet and and creativity but I also steal things from life um, to sure. incorporate in sure I think we still have a few minutes so we could have some questions from the audience uh, yeah. if you have them and Alex is, has a mic and is gonna go around if you just wave at him he'll yeah, just he'll raise your mic and, I'll, you and I'll come to you yes wondering how um, much your husband um, informed your book about the technical details of tracking and whether he approved of, of um, the details and how you took care of that. <laughs> He's here, but I won't look at him and uh, call him to the stage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think I think he approves of the way I, I depict it. Um, I I I, ha I could do a lot of research on my own to find out. He's not super technical about the types of things. I mean, he writes for, you know, biology journals and stuff. So I don't include a lot of that. But um, I did have him check, like, am I using this term for this type of building correctly and that type of thing. Um, so he, he helped with some fact checking. But um, other than that, I didn't include a lot of the research that he has done. And I do know that he has his research suggests that um, it is fracking is affecting the the environment. Other questions? I just want to say your book feels so real. I, I love that those details are in there because it just it feels like an immersive experience because mm -hmm. you've been so much more detail about fracking through the book, mm -hmm. and I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Hi. Um, I don't know anything about writing. So this question may be extremely naive, but I'm extremely impressed. Um, I'm interested to hear from both of you how your lived experience as women affected, influenced in any specific or general way. And because, and this may be not a legitimate question, but how your books might have been different or maybe might even not existed if you were writing like in from being a gal. Can I ask, did everyone hear that question? 
maybe I'll just summarize it. You ask how their lived experience as women informed the way they wrote their work. Should that in be a fair general. summary? In, in any general. Generally or specifically. Yeah, very good. Um, yeah, sure. Um, I'm a domestic violence survivor myself. And I think I mean, domestic violence is something that people of, of either or all genders uh, can experience. It does tend to happen, of course, disproportionately to women. And so I think um, it's in its own way a, a feminist novel in the sense that it's about a woman realizing that a lot of the things she's been taught about herself are wrong and that it's okay to value her own dreams and her own self-care. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, for me, it, it was heavily shaped by, by that experience and also by getting out of it and having um, friends who were going through their own difficulties and yet were able to provide that kind of support and wisdom and, and insight at the right moments. So um, there are also kind of episodes of, I don't know, mansplaining in the book that, that frustrate the character, but it's that frustration that pushes her out of this kind of, this bubble that she's created for herself. So I think that for me, this was profoundly shaped by experience. Um, Although I do want to, like, what I experience is not as extreme as what she goes through. But I think that of, of anything I might ever write, this might be the closest to that actual thing. But I, I hope that that, I hope the fact that it's based in reality can make it meaningful for people um, who may be contemplating that kind of situation themselves. Mm. I hope. Um, yeah, I, I think that. Uh, most of the characters in my novel are um, men. Um, that was a criticism, I think, of um, some early readers because there's, I guess, this expectation that because I'm a woman, I should be writing women characters. But this is a story that came to me, and these were the characters that I had. Um, having said that, I, of course, see through my own lens and experience. And so I shaped the characters, I shaped the story, um, based on, you know, my, my experience as a woman. Yeah. Other questions? This isn't a question, it's just a remark. When I read a book uh, that a man wrote, and it's about a woman, and I have to keep checking to see if it's a man, I find that incredible. So I think yeah. whoever gave you heck about that gave you wrong. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Sarah. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to let you uh, come to Harrisburg and not get harassed by me a little bit. Um, so being intimately familiar with your book, Sarah, and can you talk a little bit about um, writing sort of uh, characters based on real people in your lives? I'm curious how you pick, how you decide how much of the real person you're going to weave into the character. Um, so for instance, you know, Sarah, your main character, has a brother who, you know, in a lot of ways resembles me, but in a lot of ways doesn't. And I'm sure, uh, Kimmy, with your son, the same is true. So I'm just wondering how you make those um, sort of strategic decisions. Hmm. Well, for me in fiction, I never, s I never consciously decide I'm going to create this character based on this person. It's never conscious, although I'm, I'm sure it happens. Um, I know, I mean, when people who know me well have read the book, they've said, oh, that guy reminded me of this person, So you know. But I wasn't creating the character thinking, like, I'm going to make this guy like my Uncle Bill. You know, that's this is what I want to create. Um, so it just, I, I just believe, as, as I said, the characters in my novel, and um, we've talked about a little bit today, that you can't really separate 
you know, your lived experience as a writer from, from what ends up coming across on the page. Um, and so I think that that seeps into it, whether intentionally or not. Yeah, you know, funnily enough, um, I was there's only one character in this book who's even remotely really based on uh, someone I could identify. It's been odd for me to look at these characters that, you know, for me, live and breathe on the page. I have no idea where they came from. Like, to me, they're so, I can see them, I can hear them, they're so complete. And yet, when I think, who is this person based on, I don't know. Um, and I think that's that's part of the, the joy of the writing. And uh, interestingly enough, the, the one character, the best friend character, is somewhat based on someone in real life. And when I told her, you know, this person is so you, and so, you know, I, I feel so much affection toward this character, and she read it, she's like, oh, I love that character, but is that really, I, I don't see myself in that character. <laughs> mm. um, and so it's, it's just, um, I think that it's, it's really interesting. I think maybe subconsciously I, mm -hmm. I drew inspiration from, from real people, but I think one of the great things about this is that you are kind of creating people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these people who are so real to you and hopefully are real to the reader, you know, out walking and breathing and doing things that are consistent with themselves, and yet they're not actually based on any articulars. Right. They're kind of, yeah, like you said, they're, they're me. Yeah. Other questions? I actually have a question. So um, I always ask a book-selling question. Um, so uh, you've spent uh, years writing these books, and it's just kind of you and, and the words on the page and, and what is eventually going to become the book. Uh, but once it's published, it's kind of released out into the world, and it's to a certain extent, it's no longer yours. Um, how have you found that experience? I've this is your first novel, Sarah, and this is your first novel too. First novel. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the reviews start coming in. Uh, maybe you check in with the publisher on sales. Uh, you go to events like these and meet your fans and readers. Um, how have you found that experience? Have you have you found it being? Uh, is there some catharsis there, or is it anxiety, nerves? Uh, open-ended it's about 50 50 for me <laughs> <laughs> there it is um it is nerve-wracking um for me it's exciting it's really exciting that people want to read your book and that they're responding well and that they're excited about it and that they resonate with the story and the characters that you've created out of, out of nothing um and at the same time it is really terrifying i think that that your words are on the page and that people might completely misunderstand what you were hoping to do and, um, I don't know, pass judgment or um, say, why didn't... I, I remember um, when I was at Messiah, Catherine Patterson um, came to speak and she is a children's author and she said that people would come up to her and say, why can't you just write a nice book? <laughs> and so uh, that <laughs> I always feel like people are going to say that about my book. But so, yeah, about 50-50, I think. <laughs> I think by the time this actually saw the light of day for, you know, so that people could buy it off the shelf, um, it had so many readers to submit. For me, the hardest moment was the first time I sent the draft to a friend to read um, and got feedback from her and had that email sitting in my inbox, um, mm -hmm. you know, with her comments on, you know, the first, first piece of fiction I'd ever even attempted since I was 18. Um, and so that was the scary moment. That's actually been the scariest moment. The second one as well, which I recently sent to my brother, who was my first reader um, for the second one. Uh, and by the so by the time it got to press, it had been you know read by so many friends, you know, a, a freelancer, agents who didn't take you on, then the agent who did take you on, mm -hmm. and it it goes through so like so many people see it. Th and it's actually been really, I think, it's been good 
for me to see it have a life of its own. And actually, I've been debating with myself how much to disclose in my own story that, you know, that I've lived through. This is not autobiographical, but that I've survived these things myself. And I said to a friend, should I be out there you know, being an activist? Would that be better? And then I realized the, the book doesn't need me. Um, it's out there on mm. its own. And that's been a really great thing to feel. Um, that I that there's now this piece of art that's out there, and it doesn't really matter what I what else I go off and do, um, but that's just there now, and that some people mm -hmm. are appreciating it. And for me, the best feedback has been when, especially women, but not always, write to me and say, "You said the thing I never knew how to say." Mm -hmm. um, that to me has made it worth it. Mm -hmm. Do we have any more questions? If not, we'll wrap it up. Uh, can we give a round of applause for Sarah and Tim?